Father, we are so grateful that we have gained from the reward of our Savior. We are not worthy of such grace, not worthy of such salvation, not worthy of such a glorious reward. And yet it was earned for us by our Savior. He's the one that merited it on our account, on our behalf. He's the one that yielded perfect obedience to the law. He's the one that died sacrificially in our place. And He's the one that has purchased for us perfect forgiveness. And for that, we're thankful. We're thankful that in the midst of our crazy culture and world, and specifically this crazy year, 2020 has been full of twists and turns and arguably the most strangest year in the lives of most of us. And yet you're still on the throne, you're still sovereign, king over all, and every atom in the universe is under your direct control. And for that, we rejoice. And now as we open your word and as we use the confession as a tool to get us into the word, we pray that you would help us to accurately understand your truth, that we might love it more, believe it more faithfully, be more equipped to teach it to others, and grow in our love for Jesus as we see his glory in the truth. To that end we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your copy of the confession, we'll be on page page 12 this morning. Page 12, and hopefully we'll uh, get through the rest of chapter 1. We'll be picking up with paragraphs 4 and 5. We looked at them briefly last week, and we'll read them again this week and consider them in more detail. So chapter 1, paragraph 4 on page 12. Page 12. Chapter 1, paragraph 4, page 12. The confession says, The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. So where does the Bible get its authority? God, Jesus, right? The author, right? Uh, if the president writes, comes up with a bill or a law, I mean, obviously it's approved by our governing authority, it speaks with authority. It speaks with more authority than I would if I wrote a, uh, on a piece of paper and told you you need to follow this law, right? That, that has no authority. The authority of the one who writes the document is, the, is where the document gets its authority from. And so the Bible is authoritative, Not because the church says so, not because the Pope says so, not because the pastor says so, but because it is written and inspired by God. So, is everyone obligated to believe the Bible? Everyone is obligated, right? Because it is the Word of God. But now, notice paragraph 5. The testimony of the church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the Bible is the Word of God because it is the Word of God. It has authority because its author is God. But the church and the testimony of the church may cause us to believe the Bible. Right? We come to church, we hear the Word preached, we hear what the church says about the Word of God. That might lead us to have a high view of the Scriptures. Moreover, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections 
all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And we talked about that last week, right? We talked about some of the evidences uh, that are in the Scriptures themselves that prove the Bible is the Word of God. If the Bible is the Word of God, then it's going to bear the marks, the qualities of a book inspired by God. Uh, what are some things that we would expect if the Bible really is the Word of God? Would we expect the Bible to contradict itself if it's the Word of God? No, right? Because God is true, God is consistent, and therefore if the Bible is the Word of God, it's going to be consistent. Is the Bible consistent? Yeah. Does the Bible contradict itself? No. no. The Bible then is the Word of God. And we talked about the scientific facts, right? You get the Job 26.7, God hangs the earth on nothing. How in the world did Job know that? Because then he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? But then the confession makes this statement. At the very end of uh, paragraph 5, the last sentence there. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. What, is, what do you think that means? I'll read it one more time. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. What does that mean? Like salvation is a totally a work of God I know. through the Holy Spirit. Our belief in, in the Scriptures is Amen. a work of the Holy Spirit. Exactly, right? Because a lot of people don't believe. Right. And it's not because there's something wrong with the Bible. It's not because they have good reasons not to believe, right? It's because naturally they can't believe. They won't believe unless God works in their hearts and grants them the ability to believe. So very good. So let me. there's three statements basically the Confession's making here. Statement number one. The Bible is authoritative because its author is God. Number two. The Bible demonstrates itself to be the Word of God by scientific facts, fulfilled prophecies, its own consistency. But number three. No one will believe savingly that the Bible is the Word of God unless the Spirit enables them to do so. Right? So, is it enough in our conversations with unbelievers, is it enough to just give them evidence that the Bible is the Word of God? Is it enough to just point them to scientific facts? No, we need to go beyond that. What do they really need? Jesus. They need the Gospel, right? Because God changes the sinner's heart and grants faith through the hearing of the Gospel, right? Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ, right? So God grants saving faith as a gift to His people through the hearing of the Gospel. So if I spend four hours arguing with someone about the inspiration of the Bible and never present the Gospel to him, I've wasted my time in a sense. I should have gotten to the Gospel because only the Gospel is going to change his heart and give him the gift of faith. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a place for scientific facts. You should use them, I think. But you should use them in conjunction with and not in exclusion to the Gospel. Let's look at some of these passages that are listed here for us. Uh, John 16. John 16. Uh, starting in verse 13. John chapter 16. If you go to 1 John, looking for chapter 16, you're not going to find it, so make sure you're going to get the Gospel of John. John 16, verse 13. 
This is Jesus speaking to the apostles. And here, I want us to note here that Jesus pre-authenticates the New Testament. Verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So notice that. When the Spirit of truth comes, He's going to guide you into all truth. Who is Jesus talking to here? The apostles, right? Do you think this is a promise for every believer? Or is it a promise for the apostles? Every. Every? Okay. I think it's both. I think there's a special promise to the apostles here that the Spirit of God is going to come upon them, lead them into all the truth so that they can write the New Testament. So He's pre-authenticating the New Testament. And then, of course, in a general sense, the Spirit of God is in our hearts now as believers, enabling us to understand that truth, right? So the Spirit gave a special work of illumination or inspiration to the apostles so that they wrote the Scripture, but He still illumines our minds. Now go to 1 John. This time, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John <coughs> chapter 2. So there's a promise to the apostles that the Holy Spirit's going to lead them into all the truth so they can record the Scriptures. Now here John's talking to believers of Asia Minor. He's talking to the church in general. And starting in verse 20, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Who is the anointing that we have? What is the anointing? Holy Spirit, right? Paul told the Ephesians, God anointed you with the Holy Spirit. So John says, in contrast to the false teachers who distort the truth about who Jesus is, you know the truth because you have the anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. Now go to verse 27. Verse 27. As for you, true believers, the anointing which you receive from Him, the Holy Spirit, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. So as believers, who teaches us the truth? The Holy Spirit. Jesus via the Holy Spirit. Now, when he, John says here, you have no need for anyone to teach you, he's not denying, obviously, that we need teachers. God's given teachers to the church. His point is, is we don't ultimately need people to come tell us you know, who Christ is if we're believers. We know who Christ is. The Spirit of God has taught us. We don't need false teachers to come tell us we're wrong. The Spirit of God has led us to the truth. You to learn more. That's right. Go deeper in the Word. No. That's kind of against the idea that you have to have a priest. Right. Very good. That, because you can't understand it. That's an excellent, excellent application. Because that's what the Catholic Church tells you, right? You can't understand the truth without the church telling you what to believe, right? But we can. We have the Holy Spirit who tells us the truth. Very good. And over and over, and over again in Psalm 119, you'll see the psalmist say, you know, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your precepts. So it's God, by the Spirit, who teaches us the truth. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is a very, very, very powerful chapter. I'll probably just read all of it very quickly to you. It's not very long. In fact, we just read it in, uh, in our service several weeks ago. 
First Corinthians chapter two. Starting in verse one, Paul writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, I didn't come speaking with great Greek philosophical rhetoric. I didn't come trying to wow you with with this uh, wonderful philosophy, because that's what the Greeks were into. They liked to discuss different philosophies. Paul says, I wasn't interested in all that. Verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What was Paul's message? The Gospel. Right? I came and I just preached the Gospel. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, I didn't come trying to win a philosophical argument. I came in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming divine truth from heaven, the gospel, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. In other words, to believers, what we're speaking is wisdom. To those who are converted and perfected in Christ, the gospel is wisdom. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age, this is such a practical statement in our day, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. The rulers in Jesus' day didn't get the gospel, did they? What about the rulers in our day? Our presidential election tells us that, right? They didn't get the gospel. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For, but it, just as it has been written, verse 9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, believers, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So as believers, why do we know the truth? Why do we know the truth? Is it because we just got smarter than everyone else? No, because Jesus gave it to us. The Holy Spirit taught us, right? Verse 11. Actually, go down to verse... Uh, go to verse 14. But a natural man... What's a natural man? What's a natural man? Paul says a natural man. What is that? It's a person who is devoid of the Spirit of God. A person who does not have spiritual life and does not have the Holy Spirit. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Can a natural person without the Spirit and without spiritual life understand the Gospel? No. What's got to happen for someone to understand and believe the Gospel? They have to be changed they have to be a spiritual person, right? Natural people don't understand the truth. For you to understand the truth, you have to be a spiritual person. In other words, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. What we say here is that regeneration, or the new birth, precedes faith. The new birth comes before faith. The new birth produces faith. Because you've probably heard this uh, you know, all your life growing up in, in evangelical circles. This is the common... The common idea. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be born again. Is that right? Mm -mm. What's the right way to say it? 
If you don't uh, come to Christ now, you're going to hell. Well, you could say it that way. <laughs> That's true. But before you can even do that, you've got to be born again. So it's not if you believe in Jesus, you'll be born again. It's if you're born again, then you can believe in Jesus. You can't, if, you, if you can believe in Jesus without being born again, why do you even need to be born again in the first place? Well, because your will's enslaved to sin, right? So, right. So, so God has to change us first, right? God has to draw us. God has to change our hearts. So, for you to believe the gospel, you have to be a spiritual person. So, back to the confession. The confession is simply saying this: the Bible's the word of God because of who its author is, and therefore it obligates belief in it. But the Bible has many evidences that prove it to be the Word of God, but no one will believe it unless the Spirit enables them to believe it. Okay? So that's where it starts, the Spirit of God working in our hearts. So that's, uh, that's what we could call the authority of Scripture, but now we come to what we could call the sufficiency of Scripture in, in paragraph 6. Look at paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. So, the whole counsel of God, that means the whole will of God, the whole purpose of God, everything we need to know to glorify God, everything we need to know to be saved, everything we need to know to live for God, everything we need to know to everything we need to believe for salvation is revealed where? In his word. In the Bible, right? We have everything we need in the scripture. And then he adds at the very end, the confession, the end of paragraph six on page twelve. Nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human tradition. Very important. Nothing is to be added to the scriptures. Is the Bible complete? Yes. Are we waiting on book 67? No. No. How do we know that? How do we know the Bible's complete? Say that again. He's told, he's told us what He needs to. His will's done. Okay. What are some other ways we can know that the Bible's complete? How does the Bible begin? What it says don't add to it, right? Don't take away. Right. It ends with a warning of not adding to the Scripture, doesn't it? Right? Good. Sure. They're like the, yeah, very good point. How does the Bible begin? It begins in the, in the, the beginning. How does it end? At the end. At the end. It's perfect. There's no reason to add to it. It's done. In the beginning, at the end. Begins at the beginning, consummates at the end. We have a complete Bible. We don't need anything else. God's revealed everything. And now, the confession here, it's refuting two different, two different ideologies, two different groups. It's re, it refutes the charismatics, uh, modern-day Pentecostals, who would say that you know, God's still speaking through visions and dreams. And you, know, you hear often people say, God spoke to me, God said to me. And if they say that to you and they don't give you a chapter and verse, you know they're wrong. God speaks only through the Scripture. It doesn't mean that God isn't with us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't lead us to do things. But God doesn't speak audibly unless it's in the Scripture. 
So if somebody says to you, I want to hear God speak, what do you tell them? Read your Bible. And then what if they say, but I want to hear Him speak audibly, out loud? Read it out loud, loud, right? Very simple. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. Very simple. So notice, it says that nothing is to be added to the Scriptures either by new revelation of the Spirit. That's charismatics. No visions, no dreams. Away with that. We have a complete, sufficient Bible. That's all we need. And then it adds, or by human traditions. Human traditions. What do you think the confession has in mind there? What group? Who adds to the Bible by their tradition? Roman Catholicism, right? Roman Catholicism would disagree with us. We have already concluded from the first chapter of the confession that the Bible alone is our source of authority, right? What do we call that in the Latin? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. The Roman Catholic Church disagreed with that. The Roman Catholic Church had three sources of authority. What are they? The Bible, church tradition, and the papacy, right? Papal authority. So what the church has taught historically, what the papacy says even now in the Bible. So that's the threefold source of authority in Roman Catholicism. And that conflicts one another. Right. Popes can't even agree amongst themselves, right? In fact, the modern pope is essentially a universalist. I mean, he's teaching even atheists go to heaven. And the Roman Catholic Church has officially taught in their official dogma that there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. It's funny that uh, this is why you have this. Because the Catholic Church contradicts itself. The Catholics contradict themselves. I was at the clinic two weeks ago. was talking to a Roman Catholic uh, uh, chaplain. And he was like, yeah, there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. You know, all that. Then two weeks later, I'm talking to a guy who's a Roman Catholic out there with his rosary beads at the clinic and had a good conversation with him. But he told me, no, I don't believe that. I believe you can be saved outside of the Catholic Church. And he was telling me I preached, did a good job preaching. And, and I'm telling him, you know, I believe you're not a Christian. And he's like, man, I believe you are. And So why do they contradict each other? Because their popes contradict each other. Their authority is internally self-contradictory and incoherent. And therefore, they can't, get, they can't agree because they're a source of authority. Can't agree. So the confession rules out the charismatic movement. It rules out the Roman Catholic view of adding to the Scripture by human tradition. And then it goes on and says this, Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. So, the Bible is the Word of God. It's complete. It's sufficient. But the only way we'll believe it is if God enables us to. Then it adds at the end, we recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom following the general rules of the word which must always be observed. Let me kind of simplify what that's saying. So we, man copies God. Say that again? Man copies God. Man copies God. There you go. So we, we're getting here to the regulative principle of worship. What that means is this. God is the one that determines how we worship as a church. Right? Not, not us. God. We don't get to decide the, the parts of our worship. We don't get to come to church on Sunday and say, you know what, I'm not really feeling the Bible today. You know, I've said this before. Let's just watch Lord of the Rings and find Christian themes in there. No, we don't get to do that. God has not told us to do that. The regulative principle is the opposite of what we call the normative principle. The normative principle says this. 
as long as the Bible doesn't say anything against it, we can do it. So the Bible doesn't say we can't watch Lord of the Rings, so we can. No, but the Bible says don't forsake the assembly of... Well, yeah, but we can watch it. We'll assemble together. We'll watch the Lord of the Rings together. And we need iron sharpened iron, and we need to be fed by God's word. Yeah, we'll be fed by God's word through, you know, Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, you know. But and you can watch those at home. It's fantastic. Go ahead. But in the local church, God determines what we do. So only that which is either explicitly stated in the Scripture or can be uh, it can be drawn. As, as a conclusion, naturally and logically, from what the Scripture teaches, only those things are to be done by the church. Okay. And God said, keep the Sabbath holy. So. Keep the Sabbath holy. That's true. So, we have to distinguish between what we call the parts of our worship and the circumstances of our worship. That's what the confession is doing here. The parts of our worship are fixed by God. What do we do? We hear the Word. We fellowship together. Partake of the Lord's Supper. We sing God's praises because the Scripture tells us to do that. The circumstances of our worship have to do with things like, you know, do we use chairs? Do we use pews? Should the chairs be red? Should they be gray? What color should the curtains be? Should we paint the wall? Uh, the, wall? the Bible doesn't tell us anything about those issues, right? So we can, using common human prudence and wisdom and our own culture, figure out what's going to work best for us as a church. Do we want pews? No, we like our comfortable seats, right? That's fine. God doesn't say in the Scripture you've got to use pews or you've got to stand up or you've got to sit down. So the parts are fixed by God. The circumstances are to be uh, decided upon by the church with the wisdom that God gives us. Okay, So that's what the confession is saying there. And we really don't have to get into all of that, those verses. Um, let's go to paragraph 7 now. Paragraph 7. Now we come to the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others. Can you think of a clear verse? How about Romans 5.1? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I was thinking John 14.6. What, what does that say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't get clearer than that. comes to the Father except by me. It doesn't get clearer than that. All right, Jedi, what does that mean? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God choosing you by Jesus, so you're saved by Jesus, right? You're simple enough. A babe can understand that. So some things in Scripture are clearer than others, but that implies that some things are not as clear, right? Read Romans 9 through 11, and now there's so many theological perspectives on Romans 9 through 11. Some things aren't as clear. And then it adds, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others, right? I mean, there are people who can read the Bible and just can understand it better. Some people struggle with it. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly <coughs> using ordinary measures. In other words, even though there are some things in the Scripture hard to understand, and Peter affirmed that, Peter said about Paul's writings, some things are hard to understand. Even Peter couldn't understand Paul sometimes, right? So we're in good standing if we can't understand Paul. But anything needed for salvation is so clear in the Scripture that anybody can understand them using ordinary measures. Ordinary, just using their brain, using ordinary rules of grammar. You can read the text and understand what God requires of you to be saved. Right? Ephesians 2.8 2, 8, By grace you are saved through faith. Very simple. I'm saved by faith in Jesus. It doesn't get any simpler than that. 
And then you get to Ephesians 1, and God shows us from the beginning for salvation. Well, what does that mean? And then you end up with several different schools of thought, right? So, everything needed for salvation is crystal clear. Uh, we'll, we'll close by looking at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and then we'll, we'll just pick up with paragraph 8 next week. Psalm 19. It's a wonderful psalm. 19 or 19? 19. The shorter one. Not the long one. In the first half of Psalm 19, the psalmist describes natural revelation, that God's glory is revealed in the heavens and the earth. But in the second half, starting in verse 7, he begins to drive home special revelation, namely the Bible. The Bible. Psalm 19, verse 7. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord, Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So if you're a simple person, what, what is a simple person? How do we use that terminology? Keith, the simple person, right? Most of us are just simple people, right? If you're down south, you're just good old hillbillies, macking your knees, and you ain't got half your teeth. You're just a simple person. But notice what the psalmist says. The testimony of the Lord is so sure it makes wise the simple. Even simple people. You don't have to be a, a philosopher. You don't have to be a person that has several degrees and all these titles after your name to understand the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God is so clear and so wise that if you believe the Scripture and study the Scripture, you can be the most simple man on earth and have more wisdom than all your counselors, have more wisdom than all the rulers of our world, and be able to refute them easily because the Scripture is so clear. Think about it. You could be talking with the smartest atheists. There are geniuses. Richard Dawkins, you know, men like that that are just geniuses. And as a Christian, if you just understand your Bible somewhat, well, you can easily point out the inconsistencies in their thinking. For one minute, Richard Dawkins will be standing over here on his chair, on his atheistic worldview, and he'll say things like, you know, there's no God, we're just animals, we're the product of time, chance, evolution. And then he'll step onto the Christian worldview and say, but it's wrong to steal. Now, as a Christian, you say, wait a minute, Mr. Dawkins, get off my worldview. It's not wrong to steal according to your worldview. It's that simple. And you make the smartest, one of the smartest guys in the world look like a fool, because he is. Because he rejects God's wisdom. So even the most simple Christian on the earth who believes the truth of God can have more wisdom than all the rulers of this world. So the Bible can be understood. But if we're going to understand the Bible, what do we have to do? Read it. And it helps if we have a big ESC study Bible with a lot of good notes in it, doesn't it? And then we can understand it even better. Memorize it. Study it. Good job. So read the Scripture, study the Scripture, and you will, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit in your heart, know the truth, and the truth will give you real wisdom. And listen to good teachers. Amen. Amen. Good teachers. Back to what it said. Well, I said, you know, something that you were confused on becomes more clear. Right. Amen. That's important. Any of us as Christians should study the Bible in community. Right? I understand the Bible better when I'm around God's people who also have the Spirit of God and we discuss the truth of Scripture together. I mean, often I'm talking to some of you guys about a passage and you guys mention something and I, don't, I mean, I never thought of that. Uh, how maybe it applied to our day, our culture, 
how it's relevant for what's going on in our in current events. I may have never thought about that. Uh, and so, as we study the Bible together as a church in community with one another, God grants grace to His church and enables us to understand the Scripture better. So, very good. Study the Bible together. And as we do that, we'll know the truth. Alright, so we'll pick up uh, in paragraph... Uh, what did I say? Seven? Paragraph eight next week. And uh, I think we'll probably get through the first chapter next week. And hopefully we'll speed up. Most, most of the chapters aren't that long, by the way. Chapter two is only three paragraphs. Chapter three is only seven paragraphs, but they're all really small. So we'll speed up, I promise. Hang tight. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. We really do not understand what a wonderful treasure the Scripture is to us. So many people throughout history have given their lives to be a means by which You preserve Your Word, copying it and translating it into our languages, giving their lives, being burnt at the stake by enemies of the truth, all to help propagate the truth better. And Lord, we shame men like that when we let the Bible sit on our bookshelf and collect dust. May it never be that the Word of God would be hidden in our bookshelf, but that it would be hidden in our heart, hidden in our minds, dwelling within us richly. And I pray that that would be the case for us as a church. Especially in our day and age. Lord, who knows when they'll take our Bibles away. Who knows when they'll throw us in prison. And then the only Bible we'll have is that which is on our minds and hearts. So I pray that now, that in Your providence, we have so much access to Scripture that right now we would take advantage of that and we would dive deep into Your Word, master it, let it master us, so that we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we know that You give us grace by Your Spirit to understand the Scripture. You empower us to apply the Scripture. And You equip us to go into the world with the Scripture to testify of the truth. And so may You continue to do that in our lives as a church for Your glory. Amen.